Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, the host of Shorewords, and each episode I talk with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that inspire their chosen paths. Today is my great pleasure to be talking with Robert DeMeo about his work, uh, writing about an adventurer in Australia who um, braved the coast and the ocean waves and traveled far. But first, let me pause for some information from our sponsors. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Rob, your book, King of the Coral Sea, is an amazing story about uh, a now unknown or unrecognized adventurer, traveler, man way before his time. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about your career and your getting to the point where you wanted to write about um, Matthew Defor- Matthew Fermenko. Fermenko, ah. yes. It's a Russian name. It is. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I left home when I was 21 and started traveling and really got a, kind of addicted to the road. Uh, that first time I was gone, I uh, was gone a year and a half, went through 40 countries and ran out of money after about two months. So I got jobs on the way. And at one point I was living in a shack in Southern Israel and I met a man named Steve Douglas and we got to be lifelong friends. And years later I went and visited him in Kansas, Australia. And he took me for a walk to a place where he wanted me to see a wild man. And, um, you know, we had both spent quite a bit of time on the road and, and this guy intrigued him. So he brought me to a place where the guy was camped. He didn't tell me what was going on. And uh, I was walking down this trail. And about 10 minutes later, this man in his 70s came charging down the trail, just jogging along. But he acted like he didn't see me and I had to dive out of his way. And um, it kind of intrigued me a little bit more. And over the years, Steve sent me more clippings on the guy. And 
eventually it unraveled that he had really quite a tale to tell before he had ended up living in the rainforest of Queensland. Yeah, definitely. And so, as you say, Michael, the, the last name for Menko is, is Russian, and his tales sort of began at, almost at birth when he was quite young. Right, right. His parents um, fled, fled the, Rus- uh, the USSR. Uh, they had to travel all the way across the country to Vladivostok, and then they ended up spending a year there before they, they could uh, sneak their way into Manchuria. So at, at the age of one, he was, uh, his parents snuck him out and, and crossed the country with the last bit of money they had. And then at three, they crossed Manchuria, uh, avoiding guards and, and worrying about brown bears and tigers. And, and uh, I'm sure it, it left a mark on him. Yeah, and then um, this was between World Wars One and Two, and then World War Two got started, and he was stuck again. Yeah, they um, around um, 1940 when he was 10 was when they made it to Sydney, and um, World War Two was just amping up then, and the parents decided to stay in in Australia, and they they loved Australia, but it wasn't until Michael was around um, 1956. Uh, I mean, um, 1950, when he was age 20, that the Cold War was kind of amping up and um, suddenly it wasn't very cool to be Russian and um, or, or an immigrant from Russia. And uh, they believe that's the reason why he got kind of snubbed from the Commonwealth Games. Yeah. So he, he was an amazing athlete throughout his whole life. If he can be charging at you at age 70 or so, um, at a run. So I'm not sure where to go with this because his tale is incredible in so many different ways. You tie him into the story of the Odyssey, which is one of the books he read that influenced him some, but talk about that. Okay. Well, his he he went to Sydney Church of England Grammar School in Sydney, uh, commonly referred to as Shore. And it was a very prestigious school and his father was one of the, the lecturers there, and his father taught the Odyssey. And when Michael was 10, he got to audit or just sit in on one of his dad's classes. And the, the whole story just really intrigued him. And the, I'm sure his, his father was very passionate about it, but Michael tended to look at the world that way after that. Like, you know, he wanted to pit himself against the gods or against nature. And it, it doesn't surprise me that when when his um, plans for the Commonwealth Games fell through, that he decided he wanted to do something like that. It, it didn't really matter what the crowd said or what the judges said. He wanted to put himself in nature and see what he could do, just to prove it to himself. And that was basically what Odysseus did in, in the Odyssey. True. And there are a couple of interesting words I learned while reading your book, and I think they're a premise for this. And the first one is Xenia and the rules of Xenia. Well, that, that's um, in the Odyssey, those are the rules that you have to extend towards a guest. You have to offer them shelter. You can't be rude to them. And and it, it kind of set him up on his path because he, I think he was always a quiet, respectable man, but he believed in Xenia. He, he believed that you should behave a certain way and you should honor guests in certain ways. And that helped him on his journey because when Michael, originally when Michael lived with some Aboriginals and learned how to make a, a, a dugout canoe, and announced what he wanted to do, the government didn't didn't approve of it at all. Uh, they didn't like a white man trying to live like an Aboriginal. 
So they stopped him. So the only reason he completed his journey was because all along the way, people helped him despite what the government said or the threats of being in trouble. And that's all part of Xenia. Right. And so what was his voyage? Where, what was his odyssey that he took? Okay, so he started from around Cairns, Australia, and he left in March of 1958. And he went up the peninsula uh, of, of Queensland all the way to the very end. And then when he reached Horn Island and Thursday Island, uh, he eventually made the push across the Torres Strait to, to uh, Dutch Papua New Guinea and traveled along the coast of that for 250 miles before he finished. And, um, you know, this was a year before Michael Rockefeller had been captured and kidnapped and eaten in the same place. So there were still headhunters in Papua New Guinea when he went there. And, um, and the feat of crossing the 150-mile stretch of the Torres Strait, uh, it was really an incredible one. And when I started researching this, I had no idea how we really could have done that because the currents go east-west, and he was trying to go north. And tell our listeners what he was traveling in. He was traveling in a dugout canoe. It was just a big log that he had hiled, uh, hollowed out. Uh, he did have an outrigger on one side that he added. And we also know that he he used some kind of sail connection. And there was a, a log coming out of the side that looked like he had used it as a boom. And I'm not a sailor. So um, it really threw me a little bit trying to figure out. I knew certain islands that he was on and the dates that he was on. But it really didn't make sense to me until through the Explorers Club, I looked up a man named George Kalin who their database said he had ex expertise in sailing that area. And uh, George is a, an incredible sailor. And using the known locations of Michael and the few pictures we had of his boat, he helped me figure out how he had rigged a sail, where he went, the way the currents would have been, uh, why he might have ended up in a certain place. And, um, and it really started putting together just this fantastic tale of this ocean voyage that uh, – that, you know, he did it back in the day. He wouldn't have had a cell phone or a radio or anything with him. It was just him against the elements. And he really couldn't go to the authorities for help because they just would have locked him up. And reading your book, it caused me to investigate some of the laws going on in Australia. And I, I was talking with a friend who spent some of his growing up time in Australia. And he mentioned the idea that there was the white Australia policy. And that also is kind of a, a a shadow under which or over which he is working that while a Caucasian, he was not functioning in the sort of European style of what was expected. Right. I mean, during these times, I remember reading in one clipping that a man got beaten up for not standing when they played the Queen's Anthem at a movie theater. You know, like it, it was very conservative compared to now. The things Michael did back then, people wouldn't bat an eye at today, you know but he was just a little bit of a freak and they didn't like that. So, um, you know, I don't know how much I should get into the end of the story, but eventually they did, they did track him down, you know, and, um, and, and threw him in jail for a while. And, and there was shock treatment as well, you know? So um, that's part of the reason why his story is so unknown. Um, when he was released, I think at that point, even though the, the newspapers ran a headline that said, we've shocked the savage out of Michael Fomenko, the, the general public was really outraged, as was his family members. And when he went back up north to Queensland, they decided to just leave him alone. 
And at that point, he had a whole separate life. He went off into the Queensland rainforest, which is one of the most dangerous places I've ever been. I've, I've traveled and camped all over Africa, and that rainforest scares me more. You know, there's saltwater crocs and all sorts of poisonous snakes. And he lived in the wild up there for 50 years, mostly underneath giant fig trees. And um, I, I just think it was an incredible feat. But un- unfortunately, the longer he lived there, the more the newspapers started to characterize him and turn him into this Tarzan-like creature. And and they exaggerated the stories about what he did, talking about him wrestling saltwater crocs barehanded and everything. And the more time went on, the less people knew about his dreams for the Commonwealth Games or even his giant ocean journey. So for, for me, when I started realizing this, I realized it was an untold story and I, I really wanted to tell it. And And I think you told it very well of sort of going between his his younger days leaving um, USSR and then his, his voyage itself and where he was there and the parallels between those. It's nicely done. But it, it also is so surprising to me that I, I, I was born in, in a time when he was doing his voyage and how much has changed? Because as you say, nobody would think twice about somebody wanting to do what he was doing today. And yet when he was doing it in 1959, people were actually, he, he feared for his life. People were flying across, flying up and looking in the water, in his mind, at least looking for him. Yeah. And and they were, you know, there were there was a, a big concern, especially the closer he got to Torres Straits. They were afraid he was going to cause some kind of international incident, you know, by by arriving without any papers. And yet, I mean, so this is a this is a, a shore and ocean coast type of a podcast. And what I think was so incredible is how he survived so long, right along the coast. His respect for the environment. I mean, he ended up reporting some poachers even, so that he really was leading a, a very much of an environmental leave no footprints kind of lifestyle long before it was recognized and having a great respect for the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, you know, he, he when he lived under the fig trees, he would talk about, you know, the, the different insects that were there. He, he really did um, like the Queens and rainforest, when he first got up there, people would say, "You're going to hate it up there. It's so humid and everything." And he just, he just loved it. And uh, and and I think of that like those uh, the fig trees are just incredible. The amount of life that they have inside of them, and to just kind of live, in, they they surround a tree and then strangle it. And a lot of times when that tree dies, there's big cavities in the inside of it. And that's where he would stay. That's what he called home. Um, as he got older, he eventually sometimes would go and stay places in town during the rainy season and uh, people knew him and they opened up a, a lot of the guest houses in Kansas, Australia would have a, a back room that Michael was welcome to if he came into town. And some people also helped him organize a pension. So he did have some money, although he lived quite frugally and never really used more than a quarter of what he had. And it was just for basic cooking things that he couldn't find in the bush. While he was on his travels, he ran into an interesting man named Smiley who really... The other part of this is he didn't really know what he's doing when he set off. No, not at all. And so Smiley taught him an, a sea anchor, for example. But 
what was the name he called him? It's Tage, Tagai, how do you say that word? Uh, you know, I'm not sure how to actually pronounce it, but it's Tagai, I thought was how it was. But he was one of the legends from their their stories. And the, the way Michael had paddled in kind of reminded him that. And other people that meant Michael said when they looked at him, he, he reminded them of a throwback to the past. Um, the newspapers actually called him Odysseus too. You know, they, they thought he was like the next Odysseus. Mm-hmm. But he never had his Penelope. <laughs> there was one woman that, that lived with him out there that, um, uh, but I called her Calypso. Um, but they, they, you know, she did stay there and it started causing trouble because they would, they didn't wear many clothing out in the bush and the local guys would come out and spy on them. And, and then she ended up clearing out one day. Yeah. So what do you think the draw was about being on the water? He did not grow up on the water. And yet that was where he ended up finding most of his um, adventure, his solace, his, his understanding of the world, and um, learned to actually be very respectful of the ocean, of the winds, not sort of thinking he could fight through them, but needed to work with them. Right. I, I think it probably came from um, from the Odyssey because he, he really liked Queensland when he went there, but they had a typhoon that it wasn't a lot of rain, but it knocked all the fruit off the trees and killed everything on the ground. And suddenly it was kind of tough to just live in the bush there. And so Queensland was starting to get unfriendly. You know, it was a desperate time. And when he was staying on the coast, I think he started thinking about Odysseus, and that's when he started getting the idea for doing this this ocean journey. Were you a fan of the Odyssey before learning of Michael's story, or did you take on sort of an understanding of the Odyssey once you learned of his interest yeah. in it? You know, I, I had I had read it in school and in college again, and um, you know, I've seen some of the movies about it, but it really didn't. It didn't move me as much until I started looking at it through his eyes. And, you know, to, to picture a guy on a boat going through a storm, standing there holding on to the, holding on to the side, wondering if he's going to get flipped, and at the same time yelling at the heavens like he's talking to the gods, you know, and, and being defiant, not just saying, please save me, but, you know, bring it. What, this, is this the best you got? And, and I just love that defiance. Of course, much more of his time was spent as things were just really calm and there was little little wind, little pushing him along, and he was struggling to get anywhere. Yeah, like at Cape Flattery, where he spent almost nine months there. And I couldn't believe how long he had stalled out when I, I, I kept checking the dates to thinking that I had it wrong. How could he have stayed in this cave for that long? And then when you read about you know how he got there, the physical shape he was in, the condition of his boat, and, and also the you know, the monsoons when they're coming and going, it, some of it makes sense. But I, I do think there was a period there where he had lost his courage and he faltered in, in much the same way that Odysseus did. You know, there's, there's periods where he was going strong and other periods where he was regrouping or, or just lost for a little while. You know, it's an incredibly long way to go, especially on your own paddle strength. And this isn't like a modern day sea kayak that would have cruised right along. You know, when when he started, he was towing a smaller boat behind him, smaller dugout, and it went so slow that he nicknamed the boat Tortoise, you know, just for its slow speeds. Yep. And lost a couple of boats, but by using native materials, he was able to sort of craft a new boat when he needed it 
which was also pretty cool. And, and even after he went back to Queensland, I, I believe right up until his late 70s, he was always working on a boat here or there. So is this book made you want to spend more time on the water? You said you're not a sailor by by past experience. How much are you now feeling like you're drawn to the coast? Well, you know, I, I, I've, I'm still not experienced with water, even though I've written about it. So I, I think if I was going to do an ocean journey, I'd want someone like George Kalin with me, you know, someone that, that knows how to sail. And, and I've had some scary incidents on boats where I thought we were going to go down, you know, but um, I, I would very much like to do, you know, a week on the water somewhere or, 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 or you know, who knows, sail out to Micronesia or a place like that. It, it seems very peaceful. And, and yeah, I would like to do that. And there is that romantic air to being on the water that, I mean, the Odyssey for sure, the Contiki, these senses of, of going out and exploring nature and it's, it's most basic that um, certainly is also part of his story. And I've I've been on quite a few shorelines. You know, like one of my favorite trips, I I, I left from um, Calcutta and spent four months following the coast all the way to the bottom and then all the way up to Bombay, like 1991. And um, another time I drove from New Hampshire down to the Florida Keys and did the whole Gulf of Mexico down to Belize. And I didn't get to the Pacific until around after Guatemala. And those times just, you know, living in my pickup truck or just waking up on the beach every day. Uh, it, it was great. But yeah, there's, I guess this book has really instilled a, a yearning to get out on the water and see it from a little further away from the shore. What reactions have you gotten to this book from folks in Australia or paddlers in Australia for that matter? Has anyone responded? Yeah, I've gotten quite a bit of really good feedback because what most people say to me is a, a little bit sad, but they, they're so glad that I told the story because they always, a lot of people said, we I, I, we thought he was a bum or we thought he was a vagrant and, and we used to see him jogging along the highway. You know, millions of people saw him, you know, not as many actually got to sit and talk with him. And, you know, by the time he was late 70s or late 80s, he was a bit of a recluse as well. So I, I felt like when I learned about his story and what he had done, it, it just needed to be told the whole thing, you know, to kind of round out his life a little bit. The one thing I, I did find disturbing a little bit about him, although he, he seemed to change in, in his later years, but the idea of Xenia was in his early days, it seemed to be a one-way street of looking for help from others, but not being open to having people visit him. And maybe that was just the the whole Australia white policy and the idea of uh, his being an outlaw made him wary. But the, the, the problem he had was people would do an interview of him. And then by the time it came out again, it was, it always seemed to be filled with the same stories about wrestling crocodiles and, you, you know, and, and they really, they weren't looking for the truth about him. You know, there's very few articles that even mention as he gets older what his his hopes for the Commonwealth Games. You know, what what they were looking for was to sell stories. So there were even times where they couldn't find him and someone would get dressed up in rags and run down the beach at sunset and they'd take a picture and dub it the elusive Michael Fomenko, you know, more likely calling him Tarzan. So I, I can understand why later on in his life he, he just ran from the reporters when he saw them. Did you follow much of his path? Did you go along many of the places where he 
um, did identify as having stayed. You know, the furthest I got was Cape Tribulation, and and I and I'll when I go back there next, I want to go up to Cape Flattery to the cave where he stayed, and I've got some connections there. But um, I haven't made it to the Taurus Islands yet, and I would really like to go there someday. I'm, I'm hoping uh, in the next year or so, if I can get some momentum with this book, that I'll do a tour over there, and 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 it would be great to take a sailboat and follow that route. That that would really be my ultimate goal. Oh come on, you've got to row it. You've got to. <laughs> That's a long way to roll. And, and you know, um, for better or worse, there are a lot more crocodiles out there now than there were when he was there. Uh, he was there when poaching was at its peak, and the saltwater crocodiles almost got wiped out of Australia at that point. And now the poaching has actually been stopped? or Yeah, and, and some of those crocs are just getting massive. You know, if, you know, if you, as, as far as they can see, the saltwater crocs just keep growing. <laughs> Wow. That would be a scary thing to see, you know, from a kayak. Yes. But the other part that he talked about is the dugongs. Yeah, they're like a version of like a manatee. Yeah. And how are they doing? Do you know? Uh, They're doing a little better only because their populations are in in the Taurus Islands where there's they've, they've had a pretty good policy on conservation there. And the other part are the tortoises, Uh, uh, not just his... um, Haul, uh, not just his log canoe, but the the real ones that are out in the water that also are part of his story very much so. That right, I I don't know exactly how well they're doing there. I, I and he did kill a tortoise at one point, which you know should be acknowledged because it, uh, he he ate it and he was starving at the point. But um, uh, you know, hopefully they'll do good. Jellyfish seem to be on a rise, and that's that's a major food source for them. So hopefully they'll do well. And also our plastic bags, which unfortunately are also a food source in a bad way for the tortoises. They mistake them for jellyfish and end up then having their, their intestines clogged up with plastic. So where are your favorite beach areas or water areas? You talk about seeing them from the, the shore a lot, but you know, do you ever get uh, places that you really like to go back to the shore, be on the water and look out at the ocean and waves? I, I used to go to... Um... Crabby Thailand around uh, Riley Beach because there's some really great rock climbing there, and um, and I've gone back there on my own with my fiance, then later wife, and then again with my daughters and my parents. And um, I, I just love Thailand and Southern Thailand was just magical. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a place on the bottom of India that I would love to get to again. At the very bottom tip, you know, there's a rock just about big enough for a hundred people to crowd on out in the water. And we went out there for the full moon. And at one point to one horizon, you had the moon and the other, you had the sun. And for about five minutes, they reflected off each other and looked identical. Wow. It it was just such a magical thing that uh, I I would love to see that again, if I could. Was that during uh, Equinox? You know, uh, Paul Maley is a member of the Southwest chapter that I asked, and he, he just said because of where I was near the equator that it was just a sunset. It was just happened to be, you know, <laughs> it was just a magnificent one. Just one of those things. But they're always better when you're at the water. Yeah, yeah. And we were way out in the water. So we had really, except for just directly north of us, we had water everywhere on the horizon. And who are some of the authors who have inspired you? Well, I loved... Um, uh, Robert Prissig, like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and, you know, classical things. I, I also like The Razor's Edge by Somerset Mom. But um, modern-day things like Shantaram from David Gregory, 
you know, I, um, I, I, t- I tend to read a whole bunch, but it's usually completely focused on what I'm writing next, you know? So, uh, right now I'm writing a historical mystery from Northern Maine. So everything I'm reading there has to do with that area over the last couple hundred years. I hope there's some coastal scenes in that book. <laughs> uh, there's a couple going up the coast. Yeah. And and it's a historical mystery. So there's actually an earlier chapter, which has some Vikings going along, along the coast of Maine about a thousand years before. So when is this book going to be out and available? Do you know? I'm, I'm I'm working on two that I'm hoping in the next year and a half I'll have the two of them finished. They kind of tag team back and forth. But I I took I did um, eight novels in ten years, and then I just finished two years of republishing them all and re-editing them. So um, I'm kind of getting back into it right now. But I'm I'm actually loving this book. I'm writing a couple thousand words every morning, and it's uh, one of the few times in my life where I've truly enjoyed writing first draft. You know, so that's a good sign. Excellent. And so I know I you gave me a copy of your book. Unfortunately, you didn't. Oh, you did sign it for me. I was going to say you didn't sign it directly for me. It's a signed copy, though. How can how can listeners get a copy of your book if they want to get it? The King of the Coral Sea. Yeah, it's uh, it's available through through Amazon or Ingram, so you can get it online. Uh, there's an ebook, a print version, a hardcover, and and also an audio book. And um, Edmund Bloom narrated that he's an Australian and he has a great voice. And I, I just didn't want my New Hampshire accent on the, an Australian story like that. <laughs> but, but, you know, people that have listened to that just loved it as well. Perfect. And it is, it's a wonderful sort of modern day odyssey story in, in, in parts. It didn't take seven, 14 years for him to return home. Although he never really did return home, but the whole story of Michael Foremko is is one of of intrigue and interest, and it is surprising that he is is not as well known today as perhaps you would think he was after his incredible travels. Especially these days, when people are starting to look into the past a little bit and find notable people that did things, you know, be, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you know. 20, 30 years ago, you'd only talk about Edmund Hillary, but now, you know, we fully acknowledge it, like Tenzing Norgay and people like that, the Sherpers that helped. And Yeah. 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 I, I hope we can change that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my best to push the story. And I think it's a story Michael would have liked. What do you think his impressions would be if someone were to try to redo his trip? I think he might be a little bit envious of the gear, you know, unless someone was going to actually make a dugout canoe and paddle that and, you'd have to have a physique like Tarzan to do that that far. You know, there was, he, he would try on certain times and when the wind was blowing or it was stormy and spend six or seven hours paddling. And when he finally pulled ashore, realized he'd actually lost a mile that he'd been blown down, down the coast. So you just really, you had to have the time, you had to have the energy and the will for it. And, uh, and, and also be a little bit fearless because he definitely could have been killed on numerous times. And the photographs you have of him in his later years, he's certainly very fit there. Looks a little bit more fit than when he was picked up by a shipping, uh, fishing boat one time. Yeah, it, when he when he went home, um, he was really weak, and he, he passed out several times just trying to walk up a flight of stairs at the house. Um, he, he had lost so much weight because he, I think he realized one of the things that he could do is go without food when he had to. Sad thing to have to 
do that when you're in the midst of all this bounty out in the ocean. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but you know, sometimes you're just not with this fish underneath you. <laughs> well, Rob, thank you so much for talking about King of the Coral Sea. It's been really fun. It's a fun book to read, and I appreciate um, having a copy and sort of being introduced to a, a an unknown, incredible ocean voyager. So thank you so much for being on Shorebirds. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure to be here, and I'm, and I'm glad that I've had the opportunity to tell Michael's story just to a larger audience. Thanks. And so thank you also, you listeners, for listening to this episode of Shorewords. I hope it's been both educational and inspiring. Perhaps you want to go out and paddle along the Coral Sea someday, or that's what your next adventure will be. And it's encouraging. I'm encouraged that you start to look at the world in a different way and look differently at your favorite beach. Till next time, enjoy the coast and your views of the shore. Mm-hmm.